The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So tonight we're finishing up a discussion on what we call delusion in Buddhism, but basically pointing to a very pervasive pattern and maybe even one that initially, even today at times, is adaptive, where instead of practicing being like we do when we're meditating, which is being open and learning to drop the influence of our conceptual map, our ideas about things, and experiencing in a more direct, immediate way. Now, if we did that all day long, it may be hard to get things done, hard to communicate. Over time, you get better at it. But what's really out of balance is we sort of have lost that capacity. So when we talk about delusion or ignorance in a Buddhist sense, we're talking about this pervasive habit of taking our thoughts about things to be reality and not having any other experience of reality except what we think about. So even like maybe you noticed if you were being mindful of your breath tonight, you know, breathing in, breathing out. It's not so easy to breathe in and for the breathing in experience just to be the play of sensation. It's hard not to be under the influence of our thoughts or our imagination about the breath. And the, the amazing thing is, the part that makes us deluded is that I could be sitting here thinking about my breath or visualizing, imagining my breath, but not realizing that that's not my breath, that's a thought about the breath. So that's really the amazing thing is that we don't distinguish between our thoughts about things and the things in and of themselves. This is true in terms of ourself. The thoughts I have about Mark, I take to be Mark. And Mark, whatever this present moment phenomena of being is, that I don't know too well. But my thoughts about Mark, I know pretty well. <laughs> Because they have a certain consistency that reality doesn't have. You know, I can bring up the same idea about who I am over and over again, and it feels like, my God, I am this thing. Because that's what I thought I was yesterday. I said earlier this morning at the talk, there's a, a wise fool, um, sort of mystical character in uh, Sufi mysticism called Nasarudin. Maybe some of you have heard them, heard of him. And uh, there's lots of funny stories told about this character, maybe mythical character. I'm not sure if this was a historic person. But once, evidently, he was in some village. You know, this is hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And asked by the <laughs> powers that be, you know, identify yourself. So he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a mirror and he looks and he goes, yep, it's me. <laughs> so I want to take what Jack Hartfield has in this chapter where he talks about 
the ways we've institutionalized delusion, this being lost in our thoughts about things. It happens, as we talked about the first week, two weeks ago, it happens because of just a, maybe even a habit of laziness where we're just inattentive. We're going through our days, living our lives, but we're just not paying very close attention. And it doesn't strike us. It does the consequence of not being attentive. It doesn't occur to us that anything's being missed. Because the mind has a way of just filling in gaps. So if we weren't really paying attention, we just imagine that we were paying attention. It's like maybe we were obsessed most of the day, but when we think about what happened today, we don't like have this big empty space like, oh my God, I was completely obsessed that I it's like I don't even remember what happened. We just imagine we do remember. We fill in the blanks because we we know how to make up stories, so we make up the story of what I did today. And we have, you know, a few data points and then we just fill in the space between them. We do this a lot. So this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's just this pervasive habit of inattention. Not feeling motivated, not feeling that it's even relevant to pay close attention to what's going on. And a part of it is just, you know, one of the aspects of delusion is thinking that we know so well what's going on that we don't have to pay attention. And then as delusion matures, it becomes what we could call denial, where even if we are somewhat aware and we're seeing or hearing or thinking something, it's like if it doesn't fit our view of things, we opt for our view or belief as opposed to the direct experience. So this is where delusion becomes a little bit more entrenched and we take our thoughts to be a more accurate representation of reality than direct sensory input. And there's examples of this, you know, where things happen, but that's not what we experienced, right? Because our thought, our belief, overrides the sensory data. And then an even more entrenched kind of delusion is when our view of things, our beliefs, our ideas, our imaginations of things are so entrenched that it affects the perceptual mechanism itself. So if, you know, I have a particular belief, then it uh, affects how I see or how I hear. So it isn't even, doesn't even get in. What gets in is only what confirms the belief or the way the sensory apparatus works is it's being colored. The mind, the thinking conditioned mind is affecting perception directly. So I want to talk about this misperception of reality today but I, and I would like to begin by reading something the Buddha said some 2,500 years ago or so. One of the more, I think, moving discourses <coughs> he's talking to the monks and nuns and maybe some lay people he says practitioners this samsara this these cycles of suffering are without discoverable beginning a first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering wandering on hindered by ignorance fettered by craving 
What do you think, practitioners? Which is more, the stream of tears you have shed as you've roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable? This or the water in the four great oceans? And the group he was with, they responded, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, the stream of tears we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing, this, <coughs> excuse me, is this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. And the Buddha replied, good, good practitioners, practitioners, it is good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me in such a way. And a little later in this discourse, the Buddha says, For a long time, practitioners, have you experienced the death of a mother, a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, a son, a daughter, the loss of relatives, the loss of wealth, loss through illness. As you have experienced this, weeping, wailing, because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable, the streams you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For what reason? Because practitioners, this samsara, these cycles of suffering, are without discoverable beginning. It is enough to experience disenchantment, enough to experience dispassion toward all formations, enough to be liberated from them. So the Buddha is pointing to uh, uh, liberation that arises when we understand and we feel we have sort of this wise exhaustion. Like how long have we misunderstood our experience and reacted inappropriately? You know, where we see something, like think about maybe even today where you saw something that excited you, whatever it might have been, even something relatively wholesome. Oh, I'm going to see my friend something like that. But we turn it into something. One of the first ways that we misunderstand reality is we're confused about this happiness thing. We keep thinking that the next exciting thing that comes our way, that this is going to make us happy. But how many exciting things have come our way? And not that it's going to make us happy for a moment, but we have this misguided notion that this, this is the ticket. This will really make me happy. We keep thinking, this is what the Buddha would call delusion, we keep thinking that our long-term happiness is dependent on the next thing, whatever it is. Getting the job, getting the partner, getting free of a partner, you know, whatever, right? If this, then. And it's always like, then I'll really be happy, finally. It's some lasting, meaningful way. And you see, the delusion, it isn't that some things in life aren't pleasant and make us, you know, that having, you know, a nice bowl of soup and a warm, safe place with people you trust. I mean, that's conducive to a nice feeling of safety. There's no doubt about it. If there wasn't this feeling of pleasantness and safety, Sense experience wouldn't be so confusing. It's precisely because some sense experiences are quite pleasant. And some sense experiences are quite unpleasant that we get so confused by them. 
So the Buddha directly acknowledges that being sensitive to what we see, sensitive to what we hear, sensitive to what we touch, sensitive to what we think and smell and taste, that it's problematic. It's confusing for us. It's confusing because of some basic views that we have. I'll get to that in a minute. And so we're taking these pleasant and unpleasant experiences to be more than what they are. When we see or experience something exciting, when we see or experience something unpleasant, it's just unpleasant. It's just exciting. So when the Buddha's talking about, you know, we've wandered on, been tripped up by sense experience, by pleasant and unpleasant sense experience for a long time. And when the Buddha's talking about this, he's talking about it from his worldview, which includes includes many, many, many lifetimes, right? So, but even in our own lifetime, so even if you don't want to open your mind to that being a possibility that somehow, in a way that, you know, as far as I know, nobody has any direct evidence in a scientific sense for, but there's no evidence that it's not true too, by the way, you know? So one way or another, either there's many lifetimes or maybe there's just this lifetime for this mind stream but in any case, there have been many of these moments where we've gotten tripped up by pleasant and unpleasant experience. So if we reflect on that, you'll notice a kind of dispassion, disenchantment with the next thing down the road, the next scary thing down the road, or the next beautiful, exciting thing down the road. We'll just naturally be developing equanimity. It's when we're forgetful. Like we forget how many exciting things have come our way and we got tripped up thinking this is going to be it. You know, or this terrible thing. You know, this is going to be my death. This is unworkable. How many times have we bumped up against something negative or positive and took it personally? So maybe it is enough to become a little bit more dispassionate, disenchanted, with sense experience. Not that sense experience is bad, it's just what it is. A pleasant night is a pleasant night. A difficult night is a difficult night. Pain in the knee is pain in the knee. Pleasant sensations are just pleasant sensations. When I say things like this, people often feel that, well, that would be such a flat way to live. But it's because of this basic delusion around happiness. Don't we normally, this is sort of the conventional view, don't we normally think that life is all about the highs and lows? It's like we're not interested in, um, you know, we're kind of interested in drama, what I like and what I'm afraid of. So part of this uh, moving away from this uh, habit of misperceiving reality is looking at our understanding, our notions around happiness. Is the, the, the sense of happiness, is it about the particular conditions, the particular pleasantness or unpleasantness of the conditions? Is happiness synonymous with that? Or is happiness independent of that? And Jack Hornfield in, in this chapter, of course, 
points out some of the obvious things that some of the people who have all of the pleasant, quote unquote, pleasant sense experiences are can be some of the most unhappy people in the world. And some of those people, maybe you've had the good fortune to meet some of these people who have very, very simple lifestyles, maybe what we would call extreme poverty even, or at least you know, just getting by, just having enough to eat, enough shelter, who are incredibly happy and grateful and generous, alive. And then he also makes this point, which has gotten a lot of press in the last few years, where they've done some research with people who won lotteries, you know, and people who win lotteries, they generally report that they're happier for a while. And then after a while, their happiness comes back to their set point, where they were before they won the lottery. And they've even done studies with people who've had bad car accidents and other accidents where they've become paraplegics or quadriplegics, where they also return to the set point, even though there may be a lot of extreme unhappiness as they find out and initially deal with the huge change in their lives. But then after a year or two, they start reporting the same level of happiness that they had before their accident. And we touch this sometimes, I think, everybody. I think this is a, it seems like it's a pretty common experience that there are moments in our life, maybe you can remember a few, where we touch a happiness that isn't about anything. You know, it isn't, we're not happy because we just got something or somebody loves us. I mean, we might tell ourselves those stories, but when we really look, the happiness isn't about anything. I mean, you could check right now. You know, just notice. Whatever amount of happiness or whatever you know, we're feeling right now, do we have to assign a cause for it? We always, you know, have a sense that, uh, you know, we're so dependent on stories. So whatever we feel now, like we feel blah, then we're, you know, well, I feel blah because of this, or if we're happy, you know. Have you ever caught yourself like looking for the reason why you're happy, as opposed to just being happy? But it's like, you, it's like there needs to be a reason. Or if you're unhappy, same thing. I'm unhappy because of. But what we end up doing is we're um, sort of solidifying the experience in a way, instead of really understanding happiness. So again, we can think about delusion in three ways. There's just basic inattention, there's the denial, and then there's this more profound uh, misrepresentation or misperception of reality where we're not even perceiving experience. The view we have, the beliefs we have, take over the perceptual mechanism somehow. And we only see, we only experience what fits our view about things. And Jack Kornfeld suggests, and this makes a lot of sense to me, that it's around these three things. Around happiness, or what we take happiness to be, or our, our understanding of happiness, and about this uh, notion of permanence, which I'll talk about next. 
so another, just like in terms of happiness, there's this basic assumption that my happiness is tied to my experience. In a similar way, we have a very strong belief, and then that affects how we experience everything, that things are somehow fundamentally permanent. And you see what a huge, huge denial this is. Because if we ever check, we see that absolutely everything that comes through the six sense gates, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, and thinking, absolutely everything has the characteristic of dynamic change. There is nothing that we have ever, ever experienced that didn't have this obvious fact of change. There's never been anything static. But there's the appearance of static. And that appearance of static comes through the repetition of thought. We, you know, like I said earlier, you know, Nasirudin takes out the mirror, yep, that's me. Well, if we say, yep, that's me, over and over again, it has a, an appearance that there's something permanent here, me. You know, now it's Sunday, it's not Saturday anymore. That's changed. Sure, I get that. You know, I'm a little older than I used to be. I get that. But it appears as if, right, there's an appearance as if it's, there's something permanent. The yep, that's me is the same as the yep, that's me when I was a teenager. Basically, what we're saying is the delusion is constant. <laughs> that's the one static thing. You know, the misperception, that's been pretty consistent. Everything else has changed. And the misperception, you know, one of the aspects of misperception is assuming and uh, uh, kind of affecting the perceptual mechanism in a way that things have the appearance of being permanent. Like the world, you know, Minneapolis, common ground, my partner. These things have a sense of permanence. She or he, you know, there's like some essential truth that makes them something permanent. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have a partner or a friend or whatever, you know. But is that whatever it is, is it a thing? or a, a very dynamic changing process. It's so convenient to say it's a thing, but it's a real insult on reality because it's not a thing. Our partners aren't things, we're not things. Common ground isn't a thing. Minneapolis isn't a thing. Sunday isn't a thing. Planet Earth, Earth isn't a thing. There isn't, there aren't any nouns. There's just change. Things are unfolding, absolutely everything. And it's based on this idea that, you know, like, uh, once we have this sense, yep, it's me, you know, one of the things that it's me wants is something permanent. You know, once we've constructed a sense of a somebody apart from this dynamic world, there's me, well, the one thing a me would want is something as permanent as I imagine me to be, solid ground. So we're constantly imagining, because it makes us feel safe, permanent things. And then what does that mean? It means like, you know, the denial has to be very powerful. We have to keep covering up 
how dynamic everything is. Keep translating this very wild, dynamic flow of this and that, good and bad, pleasant, unpleasant, to something that appears steady and static and predictable, like real ground. And then when something happens, you know, like we had this idea that my partner and I were solid, like a rock, you know, and then something changes, and we have to patch that up because it's a radical breach in our idea that I could count on this. You know, we have a job and then we lose the job, or we, you know, somebody is there and then they die or they move away. All of these things. Or we believe something and then we get some more evidence and it's not true. And it's shocking to this part of the mind that is dependent on permanence. Jack Kornfeld says, with the delusion of permanence, <laughs> we grasp feelings, experiences, and people as if they were ours to keep. We struggle to hold on to the world, and yet our days vanish like a mirage or a dream. Or one image I like is like sand through the fingers. You know, try as we might, everything is falling away. We can't hold together anything. So we pretend not to notice. The trouble with this dependence on permanence is we make a deal with the devil because once we're addicted to the idea of permanence, it means we can't really show up to reality because it's such an affront to our belief. So we more and more get dependent on being disconnected, not paying attention to how fluid, how alive things are. Suzuki Roshi says, we could tag on the mantra, maybe not so, to the end of every phrase, you know, or not so, or who knows. You can just imagine what that'd be like, that no matter what our mind conceived of, we would understand that that's just a mental conception, whatever it is, so maybe not so. Or as the Buddha says, he says, no matter how you conceive things, no matter how subtle, no matter how fact-based your conception of reality is, of another person, of yourself is, no matter how you conceive things, it will always be other than how you conceive it. In other words, conceiving is not the way to know. If, you, if we're interested in understanding or knowing the way that it is, conception is not the way to get close to reality. Conception can never touch reality. Having a thought or an imagination about things is a little bubble. And these little bubbles, you know, that we have, stringing them together, this is what we take reality to be. But they're just little bubbles, not connected. So we have this misunderstanding and misperceiving around happiness, where we're tying happiness to experience, thinking that experience causes happiness or unhappiness. 
And we basically live with that delusion. So then it becomes true, because you could easily say to me now, well, yeah, that's my experience. So are you telling me my experience is wrong? Well, what I'm suggesting is that that we experience that truth, that happiness is tied to our experience, because that's what we believe. So it becomes sort of self-fulfilling. If we think we should be happy if everybody loves me or loves us, then we'll be happy. And then we're going to be unhappy when they don't love us. So if we think our happiness depends on what people think about us, then our happiness is going to depend on what people think about us. Because we're, this goes to the second point about the addiction to permanence. So if we have a conception that it matters what you think about me, then I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to be, that's, I'm going to sort of take that as my ground, okay? That's true. What people think about me matters. So I'll be consistent. And if you don't like me, I'm going to feel badly. And if you do like me, I'm going to feel great. Because I want things to be set. Okay, they're set. I finally understand how it works. And we take that as a ground. We build ourself. We feel safe because we think it's set, like I got it. This is the world. It's like this. So we have this misperception around happiness. We have it around this sense of permanence. And another place where we practice misperceiving reality, disconnecting from reality, is around the sense of self. In a sense, we're forgetting who we are and replacing it with a conception, like I mentioned before. We have a concept. Like, for example, and this is true even among people who are serious Buddhist practitioners. People who have studied a lot can have this misunderstanding because you may have some wisdom, you know, we may develop some wisdom and realize that I can't, the self, you know, I can't be synonymous with my possessions, my house, my job, my power, my money, because all of that I understand is impermanent and not self. But awareness, you know, this guy that's just behind my eyeballs, that's truly me. So we start getting identified with the mind. Right? And we say, okay, that's what I am. That's who I am. I am this awareness that knows, that feels. But that experience is so fluid. So who, who exactly are we? Like, think about today, how many minds we were today. The depressed mind, the happy mind, the confused mind, the bored mind. You know, exactly which one of those were we? So the mind itself is very fluid. The Buddha says, he makes this point, Jack Hornfield quotes the Buddha later in this chapter, he says, to say that the mind or mind states or mind consciousness constitute the self, such an asser assertion is unfounded. It would be better for those who lack understanding to regard the body made of elements as self rather than the mind. The body though changing may last for a year or a decade, for decades, but that which is called the mind, its thoughts and states of consciousness arise continuously day and night as quickly and as quickly pass away. Therefore, <coughs> whatever bodily experiences, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, or consciousnesses, past, present, or future, gross or subtle, should be seen clearly according to wisdom. This does not belong to me. 
this I am not, this is not myself. So we're learning not to be confused around this capacity we have, you know, because of language, because of the way the mind has uh, been trained, we have this capacity to conceive. We can conceive of all kinds of things. We can conceive of alternative universes. You know, we can conceive that our partner is having an affair. We can conceive that we're the best, wisest, coolest person in the world. We can conceive that we're the worst, most despicable person in the world. We can conceive of common ground as some strange cult or the most wonderful place on earth. I mean, we can conceive of anything, right? And think about how many things we've conceived in our mind, you know, just in this life. I mean, just today, how many different conceptions have we had about ourselves, about reality, about other people? I mean, it's amazing. We can have conceptions around the squirrel that we see. You know, this is a happy squirrel, this is a sad squirrel. <laughs> this squirrel is busy collecting nuts. It's like we, I drove a good friend to the airport early in the morning down River Parkway, West River Parkway. I live just uh, not too far from here, near the river. And, and it was just like, there's a lot of, of these oak trees, as you might know, along the river road. And it was just like so many squirrels. I'm not kidding, thousands. We saw black squirrels and albino squirrels. I mean, there were just hundreds and hundreds of squirrels along the parkway, dashing across. And, you know, at first, you know, I had all kinds of different conceptions. Even in that 20-minute ride, it was like, at first they were cute. And then they were bothersome because, you know, you got to, like, dodge them. And then it started to get a little weird, like, scary, like, you know, like that Hitchcock movie, The Birds, except I was thinking, The Squirrels. <laughs> Actually, I had a funny experience once with walking with my wife along the parkway just at dusk, and all of a sudden, as you might know if you live nearby, a lot of raccoons live in the woods along the river. And then, of course, at dusk and later in the evening, they come into the city neighborhoods to, you know, get some food in the garbage cans and stuff. And so they were all starting to come and walk. And somebody who must not have ever seen raccoons before, a younger person, a young adult, was walking along and they started freaking out. <laughs> I don't know if they didn't recognize the raccoons or just were you know, like I was feeling with the squirrels, like there's too many of these. <laughs> One, maybe two are cute, you know. When you start seeing dozens of raccoons, they're not cute anymore. You Some kind of primal fear, like, am I safe? You know, we had to sort of talk her down. It's okay. We'll hang out with you. So we can have so many different ways of conceiving. And then the, the strange or the unfortunate thing is we become deluded by our conceptions. So it's not like conceiving is inherently bad. Being able to you know, have an experience and then using language distill it into a conception. So we have, in a sense, we have a placeholder. Oh, this is what's happening. Then I can communicate with you, right? Because then I can say, this is what I experienced. This is what I think. This is my opinion about things. And you could say, well, this is, was my conception. You know, and we can have that dance together where we're talking about our different conceptions. And it can be very useful in all kinds of ways and even fun. But when we take our conception to be 
reality, then some problems begin to happen, right? Because once I have a conception of who I am, and it becomes my reality, like it's not just a conception, but it's the truth, then if somebody else's conception is different about who I am, that's, a, that's an existential threat. Like I've got to fix that person's conception so it matches mine. And the same with politics, all kinds of ideas around conception. So this is a third part where we uh, regularly are misperceiving reality is this habit of taking conceptions to be more than what they are. So again, it's not that the Buddha or, or anybody is dismissing the importance or the relevance of being able to think and have thoughts and conceptions about things. But can we, when we have a conception, if we're practicing mindfulness and wisdom, then with that conception comes the understanding, this is just a, a conception, it's just an idea. It isn't more than an idea, it isn't reality, it's just a thought arising in the mind. So in that moment, reality is knowing a thought is just a thought. It doesn't mean we don't know the content of the thought, but in knowing the content, we're not confused by it. So if you see somebody, you know, you can both see the person and you know seeing is seeing. You could hear the person, you know, hearing is just hearing. You can have a thought about the person, oh, that's Amy. And you realize that's just a thought, that's Amy. Right? But it doesn't mean we're not aware of the content or the relevance of the content. We're just not taking it to be more than what it is. It's like Amy or common ground or self, Mark, it's just a placeholder for something that's very fluid and mysterious. Right? Because when we recognize that everything's in process, that means it isn't a thing. Now that's that's an interesting it's an interesting thing to begin to open to. When we understand that happiness isn't about experience, but is it here? You know, it's, it's just already here. And we understand that this idea of permanence is just an idea, and things are actually like this. You know, And we're learning to turn, with mindfulness, we're learning to turn to the present moment. Like, right now, everybody here has a conception of themselves, whatever that might be. But notice how radically different the conception is than the actual experience right now of being. I mean, what is this experience of being? Like, is there anything male or female about this actual experience of being right now? Or young or old? You know, these are qualities that would have to do with our conception of ourselves. I'm young, I'm old. I'm male, I'm female, I'm smart, I'm stupid, I'm this, I'm that. But the actual experience of being isn't, it's really like in a different category, different ballpark. It has nothing to do with conceptions that we have about ourselves. Or like common ground. You know, we have a conception of common ground, but, you know, whatever common ground is, you know, I'm assuming it's here. Is this like our conception. Now we can think, you know, and say, oh yeah, I can see common ground is having an altar, and yep, there it is, and so, but that's thinking, you know, actually like common ground. 
So we're moving uh, non-delusion. You know, the, the whole thrust of practice is from delusion to non-delusion. So non-delusion simply means the mind or the heart opening, opening in a radical way to this natural sensitivity, which is, of course, very, very alive. You know, the aliveness of feeling, sensation, hearing sounds, seeing sight, thinking thoughts, smelling smells, tasting tastes, the unceasing sensitivity. What do we notice? We notice it's in flux. There's nothing stable whatsoever. There's no beginning, there's no end. So what happens is a very a natural, appropriate letting go. Letting go of what never was there to begin with. We let go of the idea that something will make me happy. We let go of the idea of things being permanent. And we let go of the idea that conceptions are anything more than just conceptions. That's what we let go of. That's all we have to let go of. We don't have to let go of anything else. It always seems in spiritual life that we've got to let go of all these things, you know, that we can't have five pairs of pants, we can only have one. Or, you know, we shouldn't have money in the bank. But actually, the only thing we need to let go of are these false ideas, these ideas that were never true anyway. They never were what we took them to be. So it's really more about coming into alignment, into a directness of experiencing, more than like changing one conception with another. Like, oh, that's a bad conception, you know, a bad thought about how to be. I'll be this kind of person. So a lot of times this sort of masquerades as a spiritual practice where we hop from being this kind of person over to being this kind of person. Now we feel better. And I'm not saying that there aren't better conceptions. There are. But that's not the end all of spiritual life, to go from one conception to, a, let's say, a healthier conception. It's to be free of our delusion about conception, about our ideas of things. So I'll leave it here so we have time. There's about 12 minutes or so. It'd be nice to hear from people your own experience with delusion around happiness, around permanence, around conceptions. Any questions, of course, you have about the talk tonight or the last couple of weeks, or anything that seems relevant. And if you do speak up, please say your name. So what comes to mind? Yeah. I'm Julie. Um, I, I get that, the, that your conceptions, may not, you know, they're not necessarily who you are, or they aren't who you are, really. But when you're building a relationship with someone, with anyone, don't you sort of rely on what your self-conceptions are? They rely on what their self-conceptions are, you know, when you're interrelating, when you're building any kind of relationship, a friendship or anything. You still have a sense of identity that would feed that sort of growing bond or something, Well, I do know what you mean, and I think you're right in the sense that that that's what happens. But I'm wondering if that's the only way for that to happen. One of the interesting things a number of people here in the room have experienced is being on retreat, where we practice uh, not speaking to each other for the most part during the whatever, 10 days or three days or three months. just depends how long the retreat is. And then at the end, usually there's time to connect. And the interesting thing is how 
profoundly intimate we feel with these people, even though we don't really know anything about them. So there's a um, there's the intimacy of knowing each other's stories and integrating their stories with our story. Like, so I have the story, I know your story, or I know who you are, and I know who you are, and I know how, um, you know, I know how to integrate who you think you are with who I think you are. You know, like there's enough synergy. So then we call we call that like a good relationship because our stories, you know, there's some coherence or some. Uh, yeah, just harmony between our different stories of ourselves, of each other, of the world. And that's that's one kind of relationship. And then there's another kind of relationship that you, we can have where it's not so dependent on that kind of harmony. And we might actually be quite different in terms of our stories. One person might be a Republican, another a Democrat. But there's a, um, a different kind of harmony that's not about conceptions, but it's about um, something essential, you know, a happiness, a comfort, a safety with that person that's about something uh, deeper or more subtle than the different stories we have. And it's maybe just a recognition that, uh, like sometimes we talk about this primal, deep wish to be happy. And that's universal, you know. It doesn't matter where you're from or our cultural background. And we can connect on that level. You know, we can connect with other species on that level, can't we? And feel pretty intimate with them. You know, we can't speak with them, of course, and we may try when no one's around. But, <laughs> but we can feel quite, I have, and I'm sure many people here have, felt quite close to, you know, animals. And I'm not even talking about pets. I'm just, you know, even wild animals. So there's different kinds of intimacy. And certainly, you know, you can have a real intimacy with someone first and then later, you know, get together on the story level and see, you know, if you can get some harmony there too. Yeah. Right. And so I found myself moving toward their conception just to reconcile and losing myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you could say a little bit about that. Well, you said a, I think you said a lot that's important, which is, I mean, part of it is this misguided sense that we take care of ourselves by taking care of the other person. Like, I can't be safe unless that person's safe. And in order for that person to be safe, I basically have to confirm his or her ignorance or his or her limited view of things. Because any view is limited. So I'm not like putting that person down as having a limited view, but it's limited in the sense that they take their view as a truth as opposed to just a view that's come out of a limited experience. So yeah, so the question is how can we become more and more independent so this person's not being safe or this person's uneasiness because our view doesn't match their view isn't our responsibility. Because who knows what that person needs? They might need that discomfort to grow and to sort of take the next step in life. 
Yeah, thanks, Cindy. Uh, Gary, uh, question talked about discerning or having right concept versus wrong concept. How do you discern what is right concept versus what is wrong concept? Concept, I see an orange bottle there. Uh, my concept is that um, Mark is drinking water. I mean, I have a concept that Mark is drinking whiskey. And, uh, you know, in front of all of us, we don't know it. <laughs> so the question is, how do you discern what is the right concept from what is wrong concept? Because I can look at that bottle there and have those two concepts. But how do you discern? Because ultimately, there's a, there's a reality there. There's either water or whiskey in that bottle, right? I mean, so how do you discern right concept from wrong concept? Yeah, maybe a better way to, to think about that is not so much uh, right concept, wrong concept, but right process, wrong process. So right process might be, um, so you have a running hypothesis, you know, it's water, but you don't, you don't let the mind out of habit fix on that running hypothesis. You know that I only know what I see. I haven't tasted it, so I don't really know what's in there. And so that's like a, an appreciation of the limitations of our experience. And so we keep everything open, open-ended. Wouldn't that be great in terms of politics, in, in terms of our ideas about other people, that we don't let the mind get completely fixed, that this is who this person is, or this is what we should do in this country. But at the same time, be willing to have an opinion but understand that our opinion is just based on this limited experience that I've had. I'm open to new information, new experiences. My opinion is evolving. I'm not afraid or ashamed of my opinion, my view changing. So, that, so really, then we can still engage in discussions and probe, and but we're willing to be informed. We're willing to be co-created, like who we are, what we think, what we do. We're letting all of life co-create that. That's a Buddhist approach. So a really healthy, skillful life is coming out of the interdependent whole, right? Because what we've done is we've used the natural sensitivity of the body and mind to basically send its rootlets out in all directions so it's sensitive. And then we're not so concerned about making the right choice. We're just concerned about choices being made with as much data as possible. So being fully present, alert, relaxed, sensitive to everything. Yeah. Just to, to dovetail up on a bit. Sure. My, and you've probably heard my favorite Buddhist parable is about the monk paddling up the river in his canoe. And, and since the other monk already thinks so, another monk has fallen asleep in his canoe and he's hollering and getting mad as they get closer and ram into each other. And he gets up and he's like, you know, what are you doing? wife's watching where you're going, and then he looks at the canoe, there's no one in it, and the rope had broken, and the storm had broken, it was, and there's no one to blame for it. Right. So, by what you're saying is, I would approach it to, to look deeply before passing that judgment, because there's this concept there of someone's been, you know, doing this terrible thing to me and running my canoe, or they're doing it for my canoe. Mm -hmm. But in ultimate in reality, taking in data, there is reality that right and and there may be you know other 
Like that may only be the second, you know, iteration where you realize there's nobody in the canoe. Maybe there's a third or a fourth, you know. So it's like not getting set on any one. And just keeping things really light and having a sense of humor about the limitations. It's like we're in something that's unfathomable. And yet that's deeply disconcerting for a sense of self to be swimming, relaxing, or doing whatever we're doing right in the middle of this unknowable mystery. That's really not, not easy for a sense of self. But that's really the, the direction of the practice, is really being OK with that. It's just like death. You know, death, I don't know, is there anybody here where death is in a mystery, like what that is? Now, a lot of times, people just take a negative scenario, like death is just, you just die, and that's it. But you know, that's also a conception. We, the fact is, the only fact is, we don't know what death is, what that means. That we can be pretty sure of, you know? And so just to, so what is our approach to life? Well, how can we integrate that truth that we don't know and just kind of keep that close? Like this thing happens, it's relevant, and we don't know what it is. And that's, a, to me, it's a beautiful metaphor for the all of life, you know, getting married or being a sexual being, you know. What is that? It's like such a mystery that sort of have these primal forces and cultural forces and you know, all the different imprints, these overlaid imprints that we've had from society, from genetics, all of it is playing out. And not only out in our own mind and body, it's playing out in all the other minds and bodies, and we're interacting and creating each other's environment. So it's really this amazing thing. And if we try to sort of nail it down into something, then, then it gets really tight and problematic. But maybe, maybe happiness and ease comes from not needing it to be other than it is, not needing to define it. Like uh, Gil Fransdahl has this wonderful line. He's a teacher out in the West Coast. You know, Buddhism is more about the need for meaning than meaning itself. So instead of like, what is the meaning of all of this? It's like, isn't it interesting that there's something that apparently needs meaning? Do we actually, does this mind, body, heart, whatever, does it need meaning? Maybe it's okay not to have meaning. Like, we don't need to know what common ground is. We don't need to know who we are. Do we actually need to have a conception of who we are to live a good life? Or have a conception of who our partner is or who this person is to have a good relationship? I mean, we can just experiment. Yeah, Barbara. Oh, it's got to be quick. I just realized it's 8.30. <laughs> a haiku. <laughs> yeah, because that that really helps us let guard down our guard, doesn't it? You know, when we're forgiving and compassionate, it's another way of saying like appreciating the limitations. It's a good place to leave it. Thanks, Barbara. Let's just take a few seconds to take a breath or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.